You're listening to Podcateers. Welcome to episode 293 of Podcateers. This week, we give you a little bit of history on the 80-year-old boy that still looks like he was born yesterday, as Gavin would say. Yes, it's none other than Pinocchio. Plus, we talk about Hong Kong and Shanghai Disneyland closing due to the recent health scare. If you have any thoughts on anything that we talk about in this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can join the conversation by leaving a comment on the blog post for this episode at podcateers.com slash 293, on Instagram, Facebook, or on Twitter. Just search for Podcateers. We're going to jump into the episode soon, but before we do, I want to send a quick shout out to the FGP Squad. If you're new to the podcast, the FGP Squad is a group of awesome listeners that help us out with a monthly contribution via Patreon, and it's their support that help make these episodes of Podcateers possible. This week, I'm honored to say that we welcome Drew and Heather as the newest members of the FGP Squad. Thank you so much for joining and becoming a part of the FGP Squad family. Uh, if you like the podcast and want more info on how you can join the FGP squad, you can go to podcateers.com slash FGP. As always, we want to send a huge thank you to all of the members of the FGP squad for their continued support. Speaking of support, we'd like to thank FreshBooks for theirs in sponsoring this episode. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help freelancers and small business owners just like us to get organized by saving time invoicing and getting paid faster. To try FreshBooks free for 30 days, just go to gofreshbooks.com slash and if they ask you how did you hear about us, make sure to enter Podcateers. Uh, yeah, okay, we're ready. So here we go. This is episode 293 of Podcateers. Yeah, chippy. One, two. Is this on? (laughs) Yep, mine's on. I got this going. Got it going. Hi, diddly dee. An actor's life for me. A high silk hat and a silver cane. A watch of gold and a diamond chain. Hi, diddly dee. No, but that's later in the episode. Not yet. I know. Spoilers. Not yet. Right? I know. Well, look, if people are looking at the title card, I think they know what you're going to talk yeah, about today. Yeah, that's fair. Plus, we also plugged it in the last episode. That's so. True. I think we spoiled we it last week. Yeah. <laughs> Besides, Surprise! Um, I, Surprise! I, I know, right? <laughs> I think we're well past the uh, spoiler limit for this particular film as well. <laughs> Surprise-ish! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've actually been really looking forward to this one because, I mean, Pinocchio has such an amazing legacy in the catalog of Disney films. I'm excited to to listen to this little history segment this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple things, obviously, that we wanted to quickly talk about that are happening in the Disney company. Obviously, Rise of the Resistance still is something that I have been unable to accomplish in my life. I feel like I'm missing out, especially the more that I'm seeing posts on the social medias <laughs> is. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's inevitable, right? There's going to be people posting about it. And I mean, is there a limit like as to how long the the Russo brothers will allow us to not talk about it before 
we can talk about it. I don't think they've handed down a judgment when it comes to theme park attractions. That's like because they did it with Endgame and Infinity War. Yeah. I mean, they might as well do it for everything. I mean, they're not involved at all, but I figure they were <laughs> the authority. See, that's because I've thing. never seen anybody do that. I think spoilers for an attraction at a theme park really only affect the people that live in the vicinity of that park or are actually going to be traveling to it right off the bat when something is released like that because mm-hmm. otherwise you know if i'm joe schmo from missouri uh who might get to the disney park two years from now like i can't be worried about spoilers from an attraction you know like that's uh, there's there's no way to like i, I just don't think it has the same effect right Right. It's those of us that live right. right here that still haven't seen it yet. You know, we're minutes away from the park and we still haven't seen it yet. It touches us a little more because we're like, ah, we could go see it if we had the time. But, you know, we want to like savor it and like save as much of it as possible. However, even for us, I firmly believe that going on the attraction itself is going to be so much more than anything we could have seen or had spoiled on a social media post. You know, unless you're watching a 4K ride through on YouTube where you watch the whole thing from beginning to end, I know based on the history of Disney attractions, it's going to be filled with details and surprises that we have not gleaned from our social media encounters. I hope so. And I hope <laughs> I say this because <laughs> I want I hope I'm so surprised when I see what I have seen on social media. <laughs> There's steam yeah. coming out of Melissa's ears right now. <laughs> That's the nicest way I could put it. I mean, I guess it really <laughs> depends on what you've seen so far, right? Because in a way, I yeah. purposely stayed away. Obviously, if there's things that were meant to be a surprise and you were the person that posted that, thanks for being that person. But, yeah. you know, like for me, like you said, Gavin, I think it's a little different because the experience itself is really what's going to define how I feel about the attraction, not the one or two pictures that I've seen posted on social media. Mm-hmm. And because I've made an actual effort to stay off of social media as much as possible for the purposes of it not being spoiled, I think I'm in a different boat uh, than than Mel is right now because uh, Mel helps manage some of our social media stuff and so she's kind of on there a lot more plus i've been so busy with everything that i've been working on that i've kind of had this built-in excuse to not have to go on there and see things right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i mean mel could have possibly already seen a screenshot by screenshot view of every single room that's in there and if that's the case well sorry mel but for me still okay (laughs) he said selfishly Right. I, I try and I try not to see anything. It's just possible worst timing because, you know, I told myself I want to try to like get my social media, you know, try to get things better and rolling and post more. And I'm trying and then this happens and like, dang it, I have to open it and scroll really fast yeah. <laughs> to like not <laughs> see anything. So it's like, man, I... I want to work at this, but then I can't avoid this. And it's like. <laughs> well, we, at, especially me, I truly appreciate the added work that you're putting into it. So if it's any consolation, which it probably isn't, thank you. 
So, so here's a little here's a little pro tip that you can try out, uh, and, and it may work for you. If you're the okay. type that is concerned about spoilers to this level that we're discussing here, you can link accounts, as you know, on Instagram. So during times like this, you can create a separate account that you link to your Odd Mouse Shop account and Podcateers mm-hmm. if you want to, and don't follow anybody on that account. So you won't have anything in your feed, but you can make your posts and then send those posts to your other accounts from that account. That way, if you truly want to avoid spoilers, you can. Then I can't follow anyone. <laughs> well, yeah. that's fair, but you got to make a choice. Either you're going to be on social media or not. It's uh, There's no way uh, to filter out what you don't want to see. That You know what? That is probably something... Man, if anyone on Instagram is listening... That would be a great feature is to like filter out certain stuff. Yeah. I know I'm going off the, t- the topic, but they might have something cool. or be developing something where you could filter out like certain hashtags or something. But yeah, uh, then you'd have to remember to go back in and unflag those <laughs> hashtags. And I don't know. To me, it's all <laughs> I have laid it to rest. I if something pops up on Instagram that I didn't really want to see oh well uh-huh. i've seen it move on that's just me though i <laughs> i try to remove the stress of it because i understand it can be very stressful yeah totally with you buddy i'm i feel the same thing and that's why it's just easier to stay off for a while <laughs> that's true <laughs> plus you true. know what it it sounds weird but i don't know i'm i'm in this weird gray area with it because I feel like at some point we all kind of have to take a break from it, right? Because the the mental break that you get is super healthy because you're not constantly mm-hmm. stressing about what has to go up, what has to this, what has to that. But at the same time, as content creators, we also want to provide content that's relevant to what we talk about and things that we like, things that we want to share. Um, but I feel that there is a point where you kind of ha- just have to take a break from everything. And for your own mental stability, you just have to kind of give some things up at times. And whether you put it aside for, you know, a short time or whether you give it a completely, that's up to you. You know, you have to figure out what works best in your life. But uh, like I said, because of everything else that's going on right now, there's just certain things I can't get done or else I wouldn't sleep. You know, mm-hmm. I already sleep mm-hmm. as little as I would ever want to, and I'm tired way more than I would want to be, but that's just, it's life, right? And the older that you get, um, the more responsibilities you end up having, and sometimes life just passes you by a lot faster. And so that's that's kind of the gray area that I'm in, right? Like, I want mm-hmm. to be able to do this, and I have to find this work-life balance especially with two young children that, you know, I have to be there for and my wife and all the stuff that's going on and, you know, life. <laughs> Hashtag damn is hard. <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, that's your Podcateers Mental Minute. Uh, I don't no, I know. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it helps anybody, but if if it does, look, take a break. If it's a day or two, try to just stay off of it. It'll help your mental stability uh, um, a lot. So anyhow, speaking of health, uh, I just, this was crazy when I read this, but 
Disney parks don't close all that often. We've seen them close mm-hmm. for tragedies in the past. We've seen them close like when the attacks on September 11th happened, you know, like for hurricanes and stuff like that. But this last week, it looks like it was announced that Shanghai and Hong Kong Disneyland are going to be closing due to the coronavirus outbreak. Mm-hmm. That's scary. I, I've, I've been reading. It is scary. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I've been reading a little bit about it. And um, it, it looks like there's there's people losing their life to this. And it is super scary. There's a lot of flights that are being canceled, that are being delayed. And... You know, I hope somehow this gets resolved sooner than later because before it becomes a much more massive issue. Uh, it looks like some cases have already been reported here in the U.S. Uh, but again, I hope that something happens or we find some way to reduce this spreading in a much larger manner. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was just so crazy to read that both resorts are going to be closing because of it. Yeah. I remember seeing pictures of um folks in the airplane, you know how they're how they're taking precautions, how the um those who work in the airplane, not the pilots. Flight uh, attendants. Yes. <laughs> Flight attendants. Wow, not enough coffee. Um how they were suited up and how they were disinfecting like everyone who was traveling out like stuff like that you don't man we haven't seen that in a while so Mm -hmm. it's i mean just hoping that everything just gets contained yeah for sure i i assume that the parks are closed uh for an indefinite amount of time they didn't say we're closing for a week it's basically just like for the time being we're closed right yeah yeah that's nuts you know um and it's scary because, you know, if, if something becomes an outbreak, you got to find ways to contain it. And obviously letting people congregate in masses like they would at a Disney park is one of the first things you want to shut off. So, right. Uh, hopefully we don't see that come to our neck of the woods out here and hopefully they can get on top of it in China because uh, that's that's got to be scary for them to be going through. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to some of the park stuff that's happening here. Uh, We were talking about Rise of the Resistance. So let's let's shift a little bit to the fact that in August, we're going to be getting uh, another After Dark event. We are. It's going to be Star Wars night again, which is really, really cool. And the opening, actually, excuse me, the date that it's going to happen here at the parks is the opening night for uh, Star Wars Celebration. Oh. Which is being celebrated in Anaheim, right? Yeah. Oh, it's back in Anaheim. Nice. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Are either of you planning on going to Star Wars Celebration? Nope. Not no. me. Um, I, I almost went, um, gosh, it was many years ago. I don't know how long Celebration has been going on, but there was, when I still lived in Oklahoma, I was planning a trip out here this is probably in 2015 or so maybe 2014 Mm -hmm. and i noticed that the same week i was going to be here was this thing called star wars celebration which i'd never heard of which was at the convention center and i almost went that year but it's gotten a little bigger since then as i've heard and yeah i just i've never pulled the trigger and and bought a ticket for it i don't feel like like, I love Star Wars, but I don't know that there's enough there to really interest me in a whole convention about it. Mm, you know? Fair enough. 
I could be totally yeah. wrong. It might be the greatest thing ever, but <laughs> I've just never. I don't know that there's anything like of a single franchise that I would go to a whole convention for. Yeah, it's certainly like you said. It has gotten a lot bigger than it's gotten in the past, especially right. uh, last year. Or was it last year or the year before that I remember they were making all sorts of announcements about what was coming to Galaxy's Edge and things that were coming to the park, some of the films. And I remember there was so many people upset because they were thinking, well, we got the D23 Expo coming. What are you going to announce for us? Like, why are you spoiling it? And, you know, I, I can imagine that as a company you want to cater to the fans that are going to care the most about the product that you're releasing, right? Mm -hmm. And so D23, yes, it's going to have a lot of Star Wars fans, but there's also going to be Marvel fans. There's also going to be Disney fans there, obviously. And right. so the the biggest audience that you're going to be able to get that's just hardcore Star Wars is obviously at something like Star Wars Celebration. So I don't blame them, obviously, for wanting to release as much information as possible at something like that because that's where you're going to get your biggest pop. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that's the thing. Like To me, like going to those panels at the expo or whatever convention it is, I'm there to like see new content and... like. Um, get firsthand glimpses and looks at things that I'm excited about. But I don't know, again, going back to spoilers, like I don't necessarily care if I've already heard about what the thing is. This is my chance to see it, you know, like that's what I'm there for, you know. And uh, again, back to the celebration, I'm sure it's really cool. If you're a mega Star Wars fan, I'm sure it's the bomb. I'm I'm sure it's the best thing ever. Um, I I just I don't I don't think there's enough there for me to want to go. Yeah, yeah. same here. I mean, it looks cool, and I I know a few people, or I follow a few people on Instagram, um, who I know this would like. This is perfect for them. I mean, their whole life is like Star Wars, and they have these huge collections. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any of that. I mean, I appreciate everything. I love the movies and everything, but. I mean, this. I think this is more geared for those who eat, breathe Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Like, if this were to be indie, pfft, I'd be there. I would be there. Um, <laughs> but like, what fair to be? Would you really though? Right? Like, what what would they? What would be at an Indiana Jones convention? Oh, I would hope <laughs> like all the props and stuff. Okay. I mean, things like that. Yeah. Um, if we were to see like Shia LaBeouf. Oh, my no. gosh. I'm going to punch <laughs> you in the face. No, <laughs> no Crystal Skull. No. <laughs> I mean, things like that. Um, even if they had, like, people who worked on the sets just to hear stories mm -hmm. behind the scenes, that kind of stuff. That's what I'm talking about. Like, that's probably those who are going to go to the celebration. They're, they're, that's what they're going to be breeding all of that. Mm -hmm. So if they were to be Mansion, if they were to be Disney, I'd be there, too, because I go to the expo. But if there's like a single other thing, it would be indie for sure. Got it. Yeah. Very cool. And side comment on Shia LaBeouf. Uh -oh. I just want to <laughs> say, I'm kind of, look, I know people speak ill of, of Crystal Skull, right? But 
I don't know if you've actually listened to an episode or like an interview or something with Shia LaBeouf recently, mm-hmm. but he's a really intelligent dude. Like he oh, yeah. is really down to earth. He seems like a dude you'd want to sit down and have a beer with and just totally <laughs> chat it up with. I don't watch interviews with him very frequently, but I saw, I remember watching the episode of Hot Ones that he was on not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And I went away from that interview thinking, that's a dude I want to have a beer with. <laughs> you know, and just and just hang out with him. Hot ones, love the show. I don't remember if that one was child safe because I think there was several words that are unfavorable to the little ones in that episode. Ooh. So parents watch it before you just quickly show it to your kids. But yes, uh, I remember walking away from that thinking like, yeah, my dude, I totally want to hang with this guy. <laughs> so anyway. Nice. Quick shout out to Shia LaBeouf. He doesn't listen to this, but I'm just saying. You don't know that. Quick shout out to Shia. That's true. He might. I don't know. I don't know. Plus, I also started watching videos that Christy Carlson Romano has been putting up on YouTube. Obviously, she was on Even Stevens with Shia. She was Kim Possible, you know, the voice of. And the reason I started watching was because there was a video that came up in my suggested feed of her listening to herself as her Kingdom Hearts character for the very first time. <laughs> and it was kind of surreal to watch it. Like, I, it's, it's weird to me that some people that voice these characters just never get a chance to listen to themselves because they're on project to project to project. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of cool to watch. Aww. Anyway, I'm kind of sidetracking way too far here. You were talking about new content, Gavin. And so we're going to pivot hard on this one because... On Disney Plus, yeah. some new content was released on Friday that you were talking about that makes you feel alive. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does. Uh, new animation. I always get excited about new animation. Um, the series uh, from Disney, the new series of short films, uh, I guess they're piggybacking on Spark Shorts from uh, Pixar. Uh, which they're calling their short circuit. So it's a circuit of short films, not anything to do with the sci-fi film that Hazen was referencing called Short Circuit. Wait, what? No Johnny Five? No Johnny Five five whatsoever. Oh, come on. It's just a circuit of short films. I think it is a (laughs) terribly named series, but it is a fantastic series nonetheless. It is all of the creative powers of... You know, Disney animators and storytellers getting basically to create their own projects. It's very similar to the um, Pixar short series, um, Spark Shorts, in that way. Um, I will tell you that I have watched all 14 of the films, which came out on Friday. And it is very much the same as traditional Disney shorts as compared to traditional Pixar shorts. So with the Spark shorts, just like their regular shorts from the films, they're really rich with story and emotion. I don't know if you guys saw that last Spark short called Loop. Yes. If you did and your eyes were dry after that, I don't think you're human. It was (laughs) ridiculous. I found it so touching. Uh, With the Disney ones, they don't really bring that type of emotion. And Disney films often don't as compared to Pixar. Pixar is the emotional brand, right? It really is. Like They know how to just reach into your heart, like squish your little tear ducts so tears shoot out your face. (laughs) Like that's what they do, right? With Disney, they don't. But 
the creativity and concept and storytelling and variety in the Disney series is a lot broader than the Pixar series, I feel like. So if you're, if you're there for the art and the animation, then you'll find a lot in the Disney series. As I said, there's 14 shorts. Um, I got to preview five of them at the Disney Expo, and it got me really excited for this series. And so the subsequent nine films that I got to watch this weekend were very, very awesome. Uh, there's only one out of the 14, which I thought I would not have put out into the world, but the rest of them I think are amazing. Uh, like I said, all kinds of different styles artistically. There's one that's just so beautiful that's done in like a Chinese uh, water brush style that Ooh. is just incredible. Um, there's some good CG. Um, there's a good. There's one that looks like it's straight out of the Sunday comics, the color comics from you know 40 years ago with the halftone coloring and stuff like that. That's cool. You know, um, and it's it's really good. It's it's a really awesome series with a lot of variety. You can watch the whole thing in like an hour. It's it's not. They're all really really short. Okay, yeah, yeah, that was gonna be my follow up about how long is each one. Yeah, so they're in the like you would say ten minutes or less for oh, each one. Oh yeah, I think most of them are like three minutes. They're real short, and oh, but okay. they oh, all okay. have an introduction by the filmmaker who created them, um, and they talk about their teams a little bit and the inspiration for the story, how they came up with it. Um, one that you'll be interested in, Hazen, is Cycles is actually a part of this, which is that oh. VR one that they came up with like a year yeah. ago or so, right? Well, that's in this, oh, yeah. and they do just like a single perspective like run through of it. I don't know if there's going to be a way through this to do the VR as well. I don't know because I don't have any like VR stuff. But it is part of the um, series. So it was cool to see that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been waiting to see what they were going to do with that. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when we first talked about it, the animation style and the 3D like style that they were presenting it in originally was mm -hmm. really appealing to me. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm okay. I'm kind of excited about this now. Sweet. I mean, I was already excited, but this is next level for me. It's now. probably the most emotional one of the bunch. Okay. Um, along with one other one. Um, but yeah, it, it was really interesting to see how they did it. Okay. Well, I don't want to know which one you felt was the one that they shouldn't have put out. Like, I feel like. Mel and I should go and watch them all. And then <laughs> yeah. the next week, yeah. yeah, we can come back and be like, okay, was it this one? And then we can each list like what our favorite one was, what our sure. least favorite, what the most impactful cool. one for us was. And uh, I mean, the fact that each of the, you said directors or producers of each one? Yeah, the creators, uh, the like the, the, the main creator who came up with it and like led each project um, speaks at the beginning of each. They do an introduction. That's cool. Yeah, That's it's cool. really, really yeah, cool. Yeah, I always like to to see those and to hear those because nobody's ever going to describe the project that you're working on better than the creator. Right. You know, that's the right. person that's put the most heart and soul into it. So, yeah, that that'll be super cool. I'm totally excited to see that. So that'll be awesome. Sweet. I'm going to have to try. I'm going to have to check out the VR one, Cycles. I'll see if I could, you know, if I could, you know, get to see it and check it out. And if I do, I'll definitely report back. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. 
All right. Well, uh, it's starting to get to that time of the episode where we're going to shift into our main topic. And again, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we're going to be talking about Pinocchio since it's going to be Pinocchio's anniversary very, very soon. So we are going to jump into that part of the episode when we come back. Today's episode is brought to you with support from FreshBooks. You know, many years ago, I started doing some freelance work, taking photos for businesses, realtors, engagement sessions, and family photos. One thing that I always struggled with, though, was finding a good solution for invoicing, and that's where FreshBooks came in. FreshBooks is the easy-to-use invoicing software designed to help freelancers and small business owners get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster. They offer super simple solutions that let you create and send professional-looking invoices in seconds. On top of that, FreshBooks offers great ways to track time worked, create estimates and quotes, you can run reports to see how you're doing, process payments, and if you ever have any questions, their award-winning support team is there to help. If you're always on the move, don't worry, FreshBooks also has easy-to-use mobile apps for iOS and Android. Getting started with FreshBooks is extremely simple. You can try it free for 30 days by going to gofreshbooks.com slash podcateers. You can also find a link in the post for this episode on our website. Also, make sure to enter podcateers if they ask you how did you hear about us. If you're looking for a way to help your business grow, help you with invoicing and billing, get organized and more, FreshBooks is there to help. So give it a shot and check out some of the great features that FreshBooks has to offer. That link again is gofreshbooks.com slash podcateers. It's time to get back to the show, but we'd like to thank FreshBooks for their support. Woo! Are we ready to wish upon a star? Wow, that was not a good musical transition. (laughs) I should have thought that further. When you improv, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This was definitely one of those where you kind of wanted to take it back halfway through the bit. (laughs) And you know what? (laughs) I'm just going to commit to it. It's said, it's done. Here we go. Now it's time to wish upon a star. Gavin, let's hear a little bit about Uh, you know, uh, they say in showbiz, the show must go on. We just got to keep plugging forward despite. <laughs> in, Regardless of how much fails. coffee is coursing through our systems. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I hopped on the chance when I was kind of helping to create our schedule this year, um, to celebrate and talk about Pinocchio which as listeners may know, I know the both of you know, it is my favorite Disney film. And <laughs> in just a few short days from the release of this episode, it will be turning 80 years old. <laughs> it's crazy, right? So right. February... Well, the Disney version. Yes. Yes, the Disney version. Yes. Uh, the, the Disney film Pinocchio was released February 7th, 1940. Um, And it was Disney's second groundbreaking animated feature film following Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Um, A lot of people don't know, but it was originally scheduled to be the third release after Bambi. Bambi went through a long production and the Disney artists struggled to achieve the naturalistic reality that they wanted to get from the animals. 
you know, they were they were doing things that had never been done in animation during this period. Uh, Walt was really growing the studio in its artistry. And in his opinion, they weren't creating cartoons. They were creating art. You know, he wanted this stuff to be lasting, amazing, real work, you know, that would be critically acclaimed and um, broadly popular. Uh, so long story short, Bambi got pushed off because they, you know, had to keep working on their techniques to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Uh, so the following two films got bumped up, which are Pinocchio and Fantasia, which we'll actually be talking about later this year. That also celebrates a huge birthday. Um, with Pinocchio, Disney reached new heights in both technical achievement and artistry and animation. By many critics then and today, it is considered to be the very pinnacle of Disney animation. So here, I want to run through just a few accolades and stats of the film real quick. Um, in 1994, uh, the film was added to the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I agree with all three of those. Uh, in 2001, <laughs> uh, The Guardian, uh, in an article by Terry Gilliam, the famous director of uh, Monty Python fame, uh, ranked it as one of the 10 best animated films of all time. Uh, in 2005, Time Magazine rated it as one of the 100 best films of any kind of the last 80 years. Uh, in 2008, the American Film Institute ranked it number two after Snow White in the overall animation genre. Uh, in 2011, Time, Time Magazine again uh, ranked this film. Uh, this time they ranked it number one all time in the 25 all time best animated films list. Oh, wow. In 2014, it was voted best animated movie ever by a timeout poll of animators, filmmakers, critics, journalists, and experts. Uh, in 2018, IGN named it the 13th best Disney animated film. Uh, by 2018, I think there was 56 Disney movies. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely in the top half. I think that's a low ranking, personally. Uh, it is currently on seven different ranked AFI all-time lists. On Rotten Tomatoes, it currently has a 100%. Wow. What? On Metacritic, it has 99 out of 100. Uh, so th this, I could go on and on and on with things like this. It is, it is critically acclaimed. Uh, famous movie historian and critic and Disney aficionado Leonard Malton said... With Pinocchio, Disney reached not only the height of his powers, but the apex of what many critics consider to be the realm of the animation cartoon. Mm -hmm. This is where Pinocchio sits in the minds of film historians and animation critics. It is uh, widely regarded as a masterpiece. Um, and it was, as I said before, created out of this time where Walt was really pushing his artists to create true art, you know, beyond the cartoon, beyond the silly symphonies, which, you know, themselves evolved and grew over time. But he really wanted to move into this realm of art um, 
in in film and in art history in general. And I and I think for a few years there, they definitely achieved it. Uh, Pinocchio had some obstacles uh, when it came to coming to market. Uh, that's because in 1940, uh, World War Two was happening. And, yeah. um, you know, at that time, even in those early decades of Hollywood, the studios really heavily relied on European and Asian markets for their box office dollars. And basically those were closed off. So it was almost purely a domestic release initially. Um, it had a budget of $2.3 million, uh, which is a lot back then. And oh, yeah. uh, eventually through several re-releases over uh, ensuing decades, it amassed $164 million at the box office. Um, and unfortunately, it's one film that I've always wanted to see on the big screen, but I've never had the chance. If they ever do... Uh, some sort of special event, a Fathom event, or some film festival where I get to see it. I'm there. Um, so if anybody hears of anything, just let me know. I want to see it on the big screen. Uh, <laughs> How big does the screen have to be? I mean, like, I, if I, we I wanna, rented a projector, I, yeah, I wanna, like if we rented a projector <laughs> and had like an 80 inch inflatable screen in our backyard. I mean, 80 like, is inches. that big enough for you? Uh, no. Under the stars. <laughs> No, I want I want you the can right wish setting. upon a star while you're watching it. Well, that is that would be kind of magical. You're right. Uh, I mean, I'd I'd like it to be in a movie theater with some some popcorn and a coke. Okay, I'll give you popcorn and a coke too. Okay, all right. You... Maybe two cokes. I don't know. I'll buy the entire twenty four pack. Okay, Pod Podcateers <laughs> Pinocchio meetup in Hazen's backyard. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so the, the Pinocchio had a lot of firsts, obviously. It was only their second feature animated film, so they, they were still breaking new ground with it. Uh, it it's, it's known as the, really the first animated film to use a celebrity voice cast. Uh, this, of course, began a trend that is continued to this day. We may not be familiar with the stars of Pinocchio today, uh, but in 1940, names like Cliff Edwards, Dickie Jones, Frankie Darrow, Walter Catlett, Evelyn Venable, Charles Judels, and Christian Rubb were all established entertainers or Hollywood actors that would have been known to many moviegoers. Uh, the voice acting in Pinocchio is astonishingly good. Uh, to me, it's arguably one of the best casts in all of animation. Uh, from the double villain duty of Charles Judels, who plays both Stromboli and the coachman, to the diminutive yet giant Jiminy Cricket, the characters ooze with life, vitality, and texture. The elegant Evelyn Venable, uh, who plays the Blue Fairy. She is not only the voice, but the model for the character. And her elegance was noted early on in her career. And she was actually also famous for being the original model for the personification of Columbia for Columbia Pictures. So they're the ones whose oh. icon is the, you know, the woman holding the torch, right? Yeah. Uh, the personification of Columbia is basically the female character that is supposed to represent uh, the Americas, really North America, like she's the character that is America uh, which I believe kind of led into why uh, the Statue of Liberty is a female character as well um, if I'm correct uh, I may be wrong someone can correct me on that 
Hashtag history. Right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Evelyn Venable, um, who played the Blue Fairy. Uh, side note, in the original story, the Blue Fairy wasn't blue, but her hair was. She was the blue-haired fairy. So they kind of huh. did a flip on that, gave her blue dress and blonde hair. Uh, anyway, uh, the inimitable Honest John was voiced by Walter Catlett. Uh, he, to me, jumps off the screen in a very similar way that uh, Long John Silver does in Treasure Island. You know, we talked about that at length in our Treasure Island episode a few episodes ago mm-hmm. or a few months ago. And uh, Walter Catlett's performance here is, to me, the same. I mean, he's just he's a crazy character and I love him. Uh, his performance of a deceitful con artist of children is perfectly offset by the warm, naive performance turned in by Christian Rubb as the doting father Geppetto. Which is ironic because I heard they didn't really like him on set. Really? Yeah. So I remember reading at one point that Christian Rubb was like a Nazi sympathizer. And so he reminded the animators about that every day. Oh my. He and was so born he in was Austria. Like so. so difficult to work <laughs> with. And so the animators did not particularly like him. I am not surprised by the politics of that era. Um, I learned something new. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was very divisive at wow. that time. That that's interesting. I I didn't. I had not read that, but I'm I'm kind of not surprised by it either. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. But the performance, the performance of which I speak, is yeah, yeah, uh, no, the incredible. performance was fantastic. And speaking of incredible performances, there's a performance in Pinocchio that no one has heard. So Gideon the cat, who is uh, Honest John's sidekick, only makes one sound in the whole film, a hiccup. Uh, That hiccup is actually heard three separate times in the film. Do you know who made that sound? Yes, I do. Oh, tell me. Mel Blanc. That is freaking right. That is correct. They actually recorded dialogue for Gideon, and Mel Blanc was cast as the, the despicable little cat. But at some point during revisions and evolutions of this film, they decided that his character would work better as a mute character, uh, more of a slapstick character, kind of like the Marx Brothers. Um, And all of that uh, audio was scrapped and they just kept the hiccup that he makes. That's it. Which is really sad considering the legacy that Mel Blanc has left behind, especially with all the Looney Tunes characters that he went on to voice later. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy to me that uh, the legend Mel Blanc uh, could have been in really in the greatest animated movie of all time. But anyway, yeah, uh, but the voice that stands out the most to me is the littlest character of them all. None other than Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy was voiced by a successful jazz musician and singer named Cliff Edwards. Um, Cliff Edwards had been a recording artist since the 1920s, so he was an established name for sure. And his quirky voice and high singing tone was perfect for this precocious vagabond cricket that would be tasked with helping Pinocchio navigate the world of temptations. He even got to sing the signature song from the film, which grew to become one of the most important songs in the entire Disney canon. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the soundtrack. The music of Pinocchio actually achieved a first for both Disney and animation when it won two Oscars. It won for Best Original Score and, of course, 
best song with When You Wish Upon a Star. Uh, the music of the movie was done by Lee Harline and Paul Smith, uh, and what they created really set the tone for many, many years and even decades of, of Disney film. Uh, with the songwriting and the score, uh, it, it really helped kind of bring the film together and solidify things. Um, I believe it was on a previous episode. I don't know which one it was, but side personal note on Lee Harline. Uh, he actually graduated from the same high school as my father did in Utah. So I thought that was oh, a cool little cool. personal nice. connection yeah, yeah. there. I do remember we talked yeah, about Yeah, I think that. we talked about yeah, yeah, When yeah. You Wish Upon a Star in an episode, and I don't remember exactly why. But anyway, <laughs> that's what we're talking about again now. So this soundtrack has a few memorable songs, but none with the legacy of When You Wish Upon a Star. That song grew to become synonymous not only with the film Pinocchio, but with the Disney company itself. It is generally recognized as Disney's theme song and refrains from it can be heard throughout Disney parks in attractions and shows, as well in all of the home media releases since the 1980s with the opening animation. Uh, and its theme lyrically distilled the essence of the ethos of all Disney storytelling. It's a song about hopes and dreams and wishes that come true. It's the positive note that really drives the Disney company in many ways to this day. I hear that song and I and I see its effect on the company and I feel like that song kind of crystallized the culture of Disney from that point forward. You know, yeah. and mm-hmm. it, it you know, you hear it at the beginning and the end of Pinocchio and I, I don't know, I every time I hear it, uh, to me I get the purest Disney feels. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I just to me, it, it, it is Disney as much as anything else is. Um, I agree. Yeah. So it, it's it's an amazing, an amazing thing that they accomplished with just the music alone. Um, so we've talked about the cast of characters uh, and voices. We've talked about the music. I want to say a word or two or a couple thousand about the art of animation (laughs) in Pinocchio. Uh, Simply put, it is a work of art. Uh, From start to finish, it is absolutely bursting with beautiful, detailed set paintings, rich character designs, actions with fluid motion, and special effects the likes of which had never before been seen in animation. There is a shot at the beginning of Act 2 that you would describe today as a drone shot. The camera seems to dive into Geppetto's village and turn down streets and alleyways this way and that before landing on the porch of the woodcarving shop. It's breathtaking. I yeah. I watch this yeah. movie as much as I watch any Disney movie, and it's one of those shots that every time it starts... And it continues to unfold itself as it pans through this town. I'm astounded every time at how they pulled it off. You know, their use yeah. of the multiplane camera at the time and the exquisite sets. And this is when they figured out uh, selective focus as well. And it is one of the most incredible shots I've ever seen in an animated film or any film. And to me, that's just one of many incredible shots in this film. Uh, it really, really 
impresses me every time I watch yeah. it. Yeah, there isn't many shots like that in any of the animated features. Like right. you see use of the multiplane camera in other films, but this was the first one they were like you said they really started to experiment with putting it in different positions mm-hmm. and shifting it around yep. because we saw the use in Snow White. But mm-hmm. that shot, yes. I mean, I remember looking at that, and I remember watching it recently again and just thinking, like, that's a gorgeous shot. Yeah. Just the way that they maneuvered through everything made you feel like you were physically yourself using your hands to go through this scene. Right. It. Yeah, it It works. It just – and they they figured it out, you know, in in the way that true innovators do. Nobody had done this before. They were the ones right. inventing this process and this technique. And uh, what the nine old men and the the technical uh, people that worked on the film achieved, it's it's really incredible. Uh, and I yeah. have never gotten over it uh, in all my years. So as I said, I feel like the film is filled with amazing moments like that. You know, they they had really interesting different perspectives that they use you know like there are overhead shots of honest john gideon and pinocchio marching through the streets that look different than any other scene i've ever seen in a disney film Uh, there's low perspective action shots from jiminy's point of view there's intricate animated sequences with hundreds of moving elements in frame and this is a time where they're hand drawing everything you know there's no Mm -hmm. cg to add you know Yep. You know, crowd effects and things like that. They're hand drawing this stuff. And, uh, you know, I mentioned select focus. And of course, there's an underwater sequence that has astounded viewers for eight decades. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. when Pinocchio and Jiminy jump off a cliff and land in the bottom of the sea to find Geppetto, we are thrown into the most believable, unbelievable scene in the film. The buoyancy and weight depicted in the animation created convincing physics and the filter effects using rippled glass and select focus created a true underwater look that blew people away in the 1940s and have people scratching their heads today of how they did it without computers, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, it is incredible what they pulled off in some of those shots. Yeah, most animators and people that talk about it historically always parallel uh, talking about Finding Nemo because mm-hmm. that wasn't that was the first film where we really went back and started looking at water that was animated as a real element and a, a real threat because, like you said, there was that weight to mm-hmm. it. You know, there was how it how it showed the characters visually. So yeah. It's that I think was part of the reason why the budget for Pinocchio ended up shooting up to over two million dollars. Sure, sure. Oh, easy. Yeah, those those effects were not necessarily the cheapest of options for them to go for. Um, you know the 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 technical processes of all of these things, when combined with the opulence of the sets in this segment. And the full population of multicolored fish, crustaceans, starfish, seahorses, etc., made for what I would consider actual movie magic. You know, this is the kind of stuff that you go to the movies to see. 
you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's really perfect that you mentioned Finding Nemo because I remember when that film came out, I was actually a little disappointed in it visually because I thought, you know, if they could do what they did in Pinocchio in 1940 and now we have this new company leveraging the power of computers, I wanted it to be just as rich and opulent and filled with eye candy as that sequence in Pinocchio. And I felt like it wasn't. I feel like they got closer with Finding Dory. But, you know, I'm not saying that visually those movies were bad. They just didn't meet my expectations based on what I knew from Pinocchio. And to me, that says more about the greatness of Pinocchio and the artistry of that segment than it says anything about the Pixar films. Um, so it, it is an interesting juxtaposition and the fact that they were doing this with practical effects is, you know, we talk about it in the parks all the time, you know, oftentimes it's those practical effects that are the best, most, uh, you know, time lasting, things that we have you know like the the digital projections and the holograms and things like that are neat but sometimes it's just the very practical things that are the best yeah. and this film is filled with it i think it's just a a, a matter of discussing the medium at that point because sure. when you think about the the water and how it was drawn and animated you're talking about an art form that's been around for centuries right yeah. you go back and you you think about some of the artists that created some of the most realistic paintings there was an entire gamut of artists that you could go through to really help you depict exactly what you're trying to right and when finding dory like i've always seen i said finding dory finding nemo you know i've always especially the Pixar films because of how badly I wanted to work at Pixar. And when I was going through school and learning 3d animation and everything, I remember watching finding Nemo and thinking, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen because in comparison, 3d animation had only been around since like the seventies. Right. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this large library of reference points and just like the nine old men and Walt did with the multiplane camera here and creating those drone like shots, Pixar was developing their own software and their own techniques to create something like this. Mm -hmm. So when you compare Nemo to Dory or even Piper, how you see the foam as the water's coming up onto the beach, we're leaps and bounds from where we were from Nemo, right? So it's more of a canvas and where it started and the progression of, of, you know, how how just things progress on, on a computer and the power behind it as time goes on. Nice. Yeah, it it's really interesting. The evolution of computer animation has been quicker, I would say, than um, yeah. 2D animation. Yeah. Uh, but I also feel like because of computer graphics, the way we perceive them and the way that it has advanced, computer animated films of 5, 10, 15 years ago get dated really fast. You know, we look back at them and they look awful visually, you know, like the design, the lighting, the colors, they can all still be awesome. Like the, the lighting package and the, the color palette of the first toy story is one of my favorite to look at in the history of film. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so beautiful, 
but the textures and physical features are so bad. That's you know? the same one that I was going like to reference. Nothing yeah. that is supposed to be soft actually looks soft. The human characters don't even get me started. Like, you yeah. know, like there there are some real limitations to it, you know, so you, you kind of have to take what you can. Now, on the flip side, there are a couple of, you know, visual effects in Pinocchio that later on they would have done a lot better. You know, um, you know, I'm thinking of things like when the blue fairy appears and there's like those rays of light coming out of her. It looks yeah. kind of like comic booky and, and a little bit less what we expect today of some sort of you know, like more subtle magic coming off of her or something, you know? Um, right. So there are some things that they still needed to learn. It's not perfect, but in an overall sense, I feel like hand-drawn 2d animated films stand the test of time better than computer animated films do. Now at some point we might reach a level where computer animated films, you know, kind of stay on par for a lot longer but it's, it, it has always been interesting to me. You know, we can still look back at, let's just say, Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast and think, oh, masterpiece, top to bottom, nothing wrong with it. But we can talk about Toy Story, which is critically acclaimed from, you know, forever. It's one of the greatest things Pixar has or ever will do. But there's a lot of problems with it artistically and yeah. visually, you know? Yeah. So, I, Well, even then, I think you're being absolutely kind because even Beauty and the Beast, like when you when you think back on all the things they were experimenting with CG-wise, sure. there's a lot of awkward animation in Beauty and the Beast. That's But fair. again, it's all part of the experimentation process, right? And that's mm-hmm. how you hone your skills. There's the practice element. Mm-hmm. The What do they say? 10,000 hours for you to perfect something? Yeah, to become an expert. Yeah. So, I mean, there aren't 10,000 hours worth of animated Disney films yet. So we're still working on it. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Uh, okay. Back to the artwork of Pinocchio. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, uh, like I said, you, this this was a film brought to us by Walt and his nine old men. Um, it went through a lot of revisions and evolutions, both in the story and the artistry the character design uh so it changed a lot before it became the film we know and love as dark and edgy as this film may seem to some people today it is much softer than the source material Mm -hmm. um for example did you know that in the original novel that this is based on which we'll talk about in a second pinocchio kills the cricket I mean, he straight up murders the cricket in the real story. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, (laughs) the characters, especially Uh the title character, uh, are more likable and easy to cheer for in Disney's film. Uh, Jiminy Cricket himself, who was originally conceived as more of an actual insect, instead ended up looking remarkably like Mickey Mouse without ears. If you look at his design, he's very Mickey-esque. Uh, so, you know, he, he instantly was likable and lovable and almost recognizable in some ways. And, uh, you know, Pinocchio actually started out as more of a literal puppet, but, uh, you know, they, they really decided at some point that he should, they should draw him, conceive him as a little boy, and then just add some wooden elements to that, you know, to make him more fluid. Um, you know, Fred Moore, Ward Kimball, um, 
you know, worked on these designs and, and really kind of softened the edges of, of a lot of this. So speaking of that source material, I mentioned it at the beginning, um, but this is all based on a novel which was serialized called The Adventures of Pinocchio. It was written by an Italian author named Carlo Collodi, and it was written in 1881 and 1882. So at the time of its release, it was already almost a 60-year-old story uh, with worldwide fame. It is widely considered to be one of the most influential pieces of children's literature and has been deemed by many to be among the most important works of Italian literature of all time. It has been translated into over 300 languages, making it the single most translated non-religious book in the world. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is well-known stuff here. Uh, like many of the European folk and fairy tales of the 19th century and earlier, it is much darker than the children's storytelling of the 20th century and beyond. Um, this happened many times over with Disney when they began telling fairy tales is when they were going back to the source materials, be it Brothers Grimm, be it Hans Christian Andersen. They had to sanitize things a little bit for American audiences and for modern audiences yeah. because those tales, if you go back and read Grimm or Mother Goose Ooh. even, there's darkness there. You know, Colors. they were more <laughs> tales of caution than they were the fanciful, you know, wishy hopey things we know and love in our Disney films, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's really interesting to see how far from the original they had to go in order to make something that was palatable to uh, modern audiences. But Pinocchio has an interesting legacy within the Italian literate literary landscape. You know, it's I've heard it likened to, you know, King Arthur, the legend of King Arthur with um, England or even like Robin Hood within like it's part of their like, national fabric you know it's part of their culture you know it, that's how ingrained it is in you know the italian identity so I, I think that's very interesting and and it's it has been always interesting to me to see how disney then uh creates these treatments of the the famous iconic fairy tales but to me um pinocchio is a runaway success of artistry and storytelling so i'll wrap up by saying this and then we can uh discuss a little bit i want to hear about your thoughts on this film but all in all i think pinocchio is still disney's finest work of hand-drawn animation it is their most epic adventure i consider sleeping beauty to be possibly their most artistically beautiful film but Pinocchio is their most artistically impressive film. The breadth of adventure, the amount of magic, the peaks and valleys of the plot, the perils and dangers faced by underdog characters are all bigger than in any other film in the catalog. And at 80 years old, it still looks incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Pinocchio 
you know, we mentioned it starting right before we started talking about it, that it's really held in high regard by a lot of people, you know, animators, moviegoers, storytellers in general. As much as Snow White was changed, like you were talking about, you know, how they changed the Grimm's fairy tales and all that stuff. I feel like Pinocchio may have really been the first one to personify what people now call the Disneyfication of a film or a story, right? Because there were so many changes to it in order to tell that story and give you that side of cute that the Disney films are really known for that I think people may take that for granted sometimes. Like, you know, when, when production was going on for Pinocchio, I know that for the first like nine months of production, Jiminy Cricket wasn't even part of the story. Right. They were trying to tell the story without Jiminy Cricket and they were having a lot of trouble because Pinocchio in the book is really mischievous. He's kind of a jerk yeah, he's not most likeable. of the time, right? Yeah. And because of that, you know, it they they added the element of having Jiminy Cricket there. And that's when you were talking about how they got together and they kind of made him more of a real boy and then went back and made him look more like a puppet. Mm-hmm. That's a full turn of what the actual story was supposed to be. But look what we ended up with. Right. Right. Yeah. So more so than than Snow White, I really think this is what gave us that Disney-fied look that people talk sure. about. You know, yeah. so that along with the music, obviously, the music was incredible throughout, um, even though they did take out the three cheers for anything song that was supposed to happen mm. when the boys are going to uh, Pleasure, Pleasure Island. Island. Yeah, yeah, I, I still think that it would have worked. But I mean, I think that was a running time consideration more than anything. Right. Like, I think they were worried about the runtime. I think it was a couple of things. It was a runtime thing, and because the le- uh, the length of the song, it kind of took you out of the story. Mm. The way that they transitioned from the last scene to the next one yeah. flowed a little bit better story-wise. So I think that was part of the reason they well, took and it I, out. Well, and I think that, um, you know, I wanted to talk about this a little bit when I talked about the soundtrack. It has a lot of notable, memorable songs in it, and, you know, the soundtrack is very famous, but it's not what I would consider a musical by any stretch of the imagination. So, mm-hmm. you know, having a song for every act and every scene would have pushed it into that musical category. And they weren't trying to make a musical. You know, the the songs that are in it are, you know, you've got the, the Little Wooden Boy song that's really just Geppetto celebrating the fact that his puppet has come to life. You got I've, I got no strings, which is part of the story because he's made to be a performer. And then when you wish upon a star is really narration. It's not an actual like song sung, you know, in the, you know, happenings right. of the movie. So I yeah. think for them to have a song where those boys are singing on their trip to Pleasure Island doesn't fit um you know, with the vehicle of storytelling they're using. So uh, it makes mm-hmm. sense editorially to to nix that to me. And even then, you can see how impactful the music and the score were. Oh, yeah. You know, like you mentioned, they ended up winning yeah. both Academy Awards that year for uh, Best Score and Best Song, which was the first time any film had ever accomplished that. Yeah. Like they had won, they had won one or the other, uh, and especially in animated film, yeah. you know, I think people 
tent, especially like if you go to the Walt Disney Family Museum and stuff like that, you see the Academy Award for Snow White with the little tiny um, awards next to the the regular size one. But most people don't know that that was an honorary yeah. award, that Snow White yeah. didn't actually earn it. Like it wasn't up for any of those and didn't win it. Pinocchio actually won these yeah, awards. Yeah, it was up against know? the other top scores and soundtracks of that year from all categories. Yeah. And so it was breaking ground on so many levels. You know, you talked a little bit about uh, Sleeping Beauty and the amazing artwork and the amazing painting-esque backgrounds that we see by Ivan Durrell. Um, you know, Gustav Tengren, the backgrounds that he gave us for this, the concept Good. art that basically became what Pinocchio symbolizes artistically the detail that went into each one of those panels and like concepts is mind-blowing yeah i'm I'm glad you mentioned that because i was going to bring him up to the you know the the set painting in this movie is (laughs) it's exquisite it's astounding you know you mentioned pleasure island a, a moment ago and a lot of what we see of pleasure island it's that dingy carnival amusement park it's like the antithesis of what walt wanted his disneyland to be right but it it serves the the purpose of the story it's perfect for this Um, but it's meant to be this messy dingy dirty place and there are shots of jiminy cricket wandering around through all the garbage and things like that and it's just jaw-droppingly gorgeous you know the paintings you know there's a scene where he walks over like a little book and there's a there's a old pen sitting there and the nib is bent and just the textures and the moisture (laughs) from the puddles and i mean yeah his work on the light transitions i think the light transitions in some of those backgrounds i think are just fantastic like the only other artist that i can tell you when i look at the art and uh like i kind of get the same feeling and people don't necessarily like him but it's thomas kincaid oh sure like kincaid had such an amazing way of transitioning light from one piece of 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 the scene to another mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that this is kind of where I feel that all began, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's it's really really artistically accomplished is what I'll say. Uh, th- yeah. This film to me is like a moving masterpiece. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, you go through each scene and it's like living art. You mm-hmm. feel everything because of the colors, the music. Yeah. What you're seeing, um, you know, the um, the underwater scene. Mm. That one is just, I, I was listening to how you were talking about it and how realistic it, it was. And as a kid, you're watching this and it's, you know, it gets to you. Yeah. Like you think for a moment, like it just takes you there where you're just like, this feels this. It just looks real. It feels real. If they thrown water, that would have been the complete package. Right. This film, like it, it brings out a whole lot of emotions out of me for sure. Sure. Like, yeah, that whole uh, pleasure Island part. Like I, <laughs> gosh, as a kid, you're like, I don't want to go there. Like, you, but you're still watching this and you're feeling the grit. I mean, you're you're just like, uh, like you just want to <laughs> clean your, like just 
you just want to go to the next scene. You're like, no. <laughs> you kind of watch with the, some of those scenes with a morbid curiosity. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you talked about emotion. And as a kid, I remember feeling the, the tension and the mm-hmm. fear during the Monstro sequence. And the way that they animate that, to me, Monstro becomes the most menacing villain in the Disney catalog when he is after them on that little rickety raft. Yeah. It's this huge whale with these like, I don't know, supernatural speedboat powers (laughs) where he just cruises (laughs) along the surface of the water. I mean, it's kind of like Captain Nemo's uh, Nautilus and, you know, mixed with this terrifying monster whale character. It's so intense. It's so Mm -hmm. imaginative the way that they conceived how that whale moves and travels where it does that like banked turn in the water and then races back towards them, you know, like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's insane that like they just were out of their minds. But I feel like in a lot of ways they were really reveling in the, they had leveled up and they kind of knew it, you know, they were almost flexing with this almost unstoppable power like they could animate anything they wanted you know and so why not make this whale do these crazy stunts and moves on and in the water but I remember thinking even as a kid like this is the scariest thing I've ever seen in my entire life I'm horrified but I can't stop watching (laughs) Uh, and it's interesting because Pinocchio is is an absolute underdog character I mean he was quite literally born yesterday and He's up against the biggest cast of villains in almost any other Disney movie. Like, yeah, I can't think of another one that has this many villainous characters trying to trip the main character up. You know, the protagonist is outnumbered in a large way in this film. Yeah, I I agree with that. I don't think there is another one. I mean, no, I, I think he is outnumbered. Other than like, what's the Mickey Mouse like House of Mouse or House of Monsters or whatever? <laughs> House of Villains. House of Villains or something where he's against all the yeah. villains. That doesn't but count. That was, yeah, right. Yeah, I I totally get what you're saying with this one. The emotion, ah, I it. There's so much to it. You know, when I think back on when I was first taking storyboarding and learning animation, the very first book that we were asked to go get was The Illusion of Life. Yes. You know, and there's a reason why Pinocchio's on the cover and Snow White's not on the cover of that book. Dude, you (laughs) You stole the thought from my mouth. That was the very next thing I was going to bring up. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and it's all I was thinking about, right? Because the way that they were able to get Monstro to emote and uh, it, it set the groundwork for anthropomorphic characters throughout the Disney catalog more so than Donald Duck or mm-hmm. Mickey or Goofy had ever done because when you think back on some of those animations they're blatant right it's just like big old wide mouth and like lines drawn around the head showing surprise right. mm-hmm. but this like the subtle movements of the eyebrows and the mouth and the way that they furrow their brow. It was just a brand new form of expression that was never seen. And it's the basis of everything that is taught now in the Disney company. Right. Yeah. Man. And then talking about Monstro, we're talking about how this film is turning 80. And you see that clip in Fantasmic 
where monsters still like going at you and you have that water mm-hmm. effect and it's like you have that music and it still gets you like it it still creeps you out yeah like he's coming after you and yeah for it's crazy that this came out how many decades and it's still effective yeah it really is, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I, I think its legacy is I fear for it in a lot of ways. You know, I've joked a lot of times about, you know, how it's only a matter of time before the Pinocchio attraction leaves Fantasyland. But when when it really comes down to it, I don't really think that'll happen. Um, no. You know, I think it has a place. Like I said, it, it, it continually shows up in attractions and shows, uh, you know, like Fantasmic, like all, a lot of the fireworks shows that have been, you know, celebrating the park or Disney legacy if you know, if they're showing, if they're including highlights, you know, Pinocchio inevitably makes it in there somewhere. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's pretty secure. The fact that Jiminy Cricket is as iconic a character as he is, you know, I think mm-hmm. really in feature animation, it's like Tinkerbell, Jiminy and maybe a couple others that you could argue are like the most iconic singular characters because uh, they're used in so many other ways throughout Disney's um, offerings. Um, and then, you know, the fact that when you wish upon a star is what it is to the Disney company and to Disney fans. I do think Pinocchio's legacy is secure. I don't think that it's an overrated movie because I think it's rated really, really highly with critics um, and film historians. However, I do believe today it is an underwatched film and I wish more people would uh, watch it and become familiar with it and enjoy it um, because it is to me amongst the very most important films of the first half of the 20th century. Oh, definitely. And we went way longer than we thought we were going to, but I can't shut up about my favorite <laughs> movie, so that's why. That's okay. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I love when, even when we take the little sidebars like that, yeah. uh, I think they always spark up really good conversation. Yeah. So, dude, great talk on Pinocchio today. Thank you for that history segment. Uh, now we want to hear from all of you. You know, where does Pinocchio stand in your own rankings? You know, join the conversation. Tell us how you feel about the film. And you can either connect with us over on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter. Just search for Podcateers. You can also leave a comment on the blog post for this episode over at podcateers.com slash 293. Uh, We'd love to hear your thoughts and share them in an upcoming episode. Or at least go back and forth on what what we think and feel about the film on any of those social networks networks oh speaking of blue fairy you hear that that means we have two new fairy god Awesome. so in case you don't know the fgp squad is actually an alias for our podcast fairy godparents the fgp squad are a group of amazing listeners just like you that help us out with a monthly contribution via patreon uh, if you want a little bit more information on how you can become part of the fgp squad you can head over to podcateers.com fgp for more info and a link but this week we'd like to welcome drew and heather as members of the fgp squad nice thank you so much for your support Again, if any of you are interested in becoming part of the FGP squad, podcateers.com slash FGP is where you will find that information. 
So uh, cool. Do we have any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? Let's Not go. Let's go of. get boarding passes for Rise of the Resistance. What do you say? Right. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, can we go back in time several hours so that we're there by rope drop? Because I feel like they're gone by now. That's possible. Well, let's just get in line for tomorrow then. Sure. <laughs> cool. We're early for tomorrow. Okay. Yay, we got to hit start. Sweet. That's right. <laughs> so that's going to wrap it up for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this talk for Pinocchio's 80th anniversary. Again, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And if you haven't watched it, go watch it on Disney+. Plus. It is available for you to check it out. And on that note, keep dreaming, keep moving forward, and always remember to pass on the magic. Have a fantastic week, everyone. Bye. Major look. Major look.